Inside Speedway is brought to you by P1 Australia and by Speedway Classics Magazine, on sale now. From the dirt tracks across Australia, welcome to Inside Speedway with Dennis Newman and Craig Revelle. And Dennis, we're kicking it off with probably uh, some great news for speed car midget fans across Australia. And joining us on the line is Jaden Edge. Jaden, a fantastic effort by Speed Car Association of New South Wales and a, and a small band of those members to come up with the Seamont Racing 2020 Esports Sydney Midget Speed Car 50 Lapper. And the highlight on that is it's now worth $1,500 to win. What a fantastic effort. Yeah, it's a great effort. And a uh, big shout-out to uh, Michael Bullerman, Matt Jackson, myself, and obviously the uh, New South Wales Committee for uh, believing in the concept. And uh, obviously the uh, amazing sponsors that have come on board from uh, Sane, Seamount Racing in New Zealand, Kelly Body Works in Canberra, and uh, multiple others. It's uh, fantastic to see so many so many people getting on board. I guess that's how desperate they are to see uh, speed car racing in Australia. They are quite happy to have it online as well. Now, 168 entries. That's uh, that's yeah. a fantastic roll call, and it means it's three nights of racing. That's correct. Um, we've got uh, many, many people that obviously starved for some uh, entertainment at the moment and uh, missing their racing. And, yeah, we uh, kick off tonight at 7 p.m., in Sydney and uh, have one prelim tonight, two prelims tomorrow, and then the finals on Saturday. Now, it was originally 500 to pay for the winner. It's now by 1500 to win, but you're paying right back to, uh, well, it's money back if you make the B main, isn't it? Correct, yeah. If you, uh, if you make the B main, you get your nomination money back, um, and then we're paying all the way through the A, and... Uh, Thanks to the additional sponsors in the last uh, week, we're uh, also paying first, second and third in the prelim features now. That's fantastic. And and lap leader. It's It's been a long time since I can remember lap leader money as uh, as good as this is getting. Yeah, well, the uh, Speaker Club, it's, it's one of the things we do for our annual 50 lapper at Parramatta and uh, we thought we'd uh, try and keep that tradition alive, obviously on a smaller scale, but... Um, yeah, you know, there's a potential for an extra $250 if you lead all 50 laps. Mm, that's a great effort, Dennis, isn't it, to see uh, speed car racing uh, back yeah. on the track, even if it's E-Series. Yeah, look, it's fabulous. Jaden. amongst the notable entries, or 168, as you said, who are some of the notable names? Well, uh, Australian base, we have uh, many, many current or ex-speed car drivers uh, sprint car drivers, sedan drivers. We've got uh, people like former Australian champion Caden Brown. Uh, from America, we have Keith Coons Motorsports driver Jason Pursley. And uh, probably the most notable driver we've got on board is uh, ex-Formula One driver Brendan Hartley. Yeah, That's he's fabulous. He's won Le Mans. He's won the World Endurance Championship. He's he's got Correct. a lot of real world credentials as well as uh, wanting to go and race E Series in Speedway. Correct. Yeah, Jaden. When this, Jaden, when this yep. came into as a plan, how long did it take to get it to this stage? 
from the initial concept to um, getting the backing from the speaker club, uh, it was probably about a 10-day process. That's fabulous. And I guess a lot of praise must go out to Seamount Racing and Brett Morris. He is such a devotee and backer and supporter, a corporate supporter of speed car racing in Australasia. Yeah, Brett, Brett and Lee Morris are both uh, wonderful speedway people and uh, Brett's put his money where his mouth is for a very long time in this sport and, uh, you know, a lot of people have him to thank for uh, the contribution he's put towards the sport as a whole. And for people who want to watch it across the uh, weekend, Ultimate Dirt TV will be providing the uh, broadcast coverage and the Speed Car Association of New South Wales Facebook page will have the link up. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, thanks to Brett from uh, Ultimate Dirt TV to come on board and uh, broadcast all three nights for us and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. It's going to be an exciting weekend for everyone who enjoys uh, speed car racing, virtual or real world, because there's such a mix of names in that entry list. Indeed. Uh, we're all itching to go now and it's, uh, it's go time today, so uh, let's get at it. All right. Thanks very much, Jaden, for your time here on Inside Speedway. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jaden. Good to talk to you. And Dennis, so that is uh, that is a big way to start the show. But we've got a fantastic interview as well that we're speaking oh, with Brooke Tatnell. Yes, the one and only uh, Brooke Tatnell. And really uh, looking forward to this. You know, Brooke, um, he is a chip off the old block. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he's always good for chat and um, he's always full of information latest in his racing career, where he's heading, what he's doing, and I'm quite sure he will tell it all. And this could be really a good interview because uh, Brooke's a great person and, and a great awareness of promotion of the sport too. And we had some fantastic news for Brooke this week. He, we spoke to him on the weekend, so we've held on to this interview for a little while. But since we spoke to him, he has confirmed that he will be in the number 64 at Knoxville on Friday night US time, and that is going to be uh, fantastic. You can watch all the action live on Dirt T on Dirt Vision, I should say. So uh, you can watch the speed cars, and then Knoxville with uh, Brooke Tatnell. And Brooke's not the only Australian that is uh, running there. There is a number of them. I went through that list before, Dennis, and now I can't see it. But you've got. Um, Linton Jeffries, who was well, on the Linton show, Je yeah, Madsen Brothers. Y yeah, yes, yes, um, you know, the regular regulars um, out of Australia who ply their trade at Knoxville Raceway, they are competing. It promises to be a great show. And, you know, in, in these very difficult times, I mean, we're getting through this uh, really well. Now, this is a, an invitational event, as I understand it, Craig. Yeah, it does say that it is an invitational, but they, uh, in the press release, they're saying it's arguably the strongest field of 410 wing sprint cars ever assembled for one night. So it's going to be run in front of no crowd. And I know it caused a lot of confusion for yourself and well, for both of us, because you read the Knoxville Racing website and they say no racing is happening until the Iowa State Council, uh, or sorry, the Iowa State Legislature uh, allows crowds in, but this event is going ahead and it's a, uh, well, it's a Dirt Vision exclusive. Well, well, it's interesting because if you go to the Knoxville 
website, as you rightly point out, their press release on Wednesday, May 6, say emphatically there won't be any racing there whilst ever uh, there is no crowd allowed according to the regulations imposed by the state of Iowa un under the coronavirus pandemic. You, you then uh, check out the World of Outlaws website and they are promoting this weekend as a racing event with no crowd at Knoxville. So it's a, it's a bit, I, I wouldn't say, go so far as to call it a contradiction in terms, but it's a little bit different that is there, is there going to be an Outlaws show run by the Outlaws uh, as opposed to a Knoxville-hosted World of Outlaws round? Um, so what's your take on it, Craig? Yeah. I, I, was, I was certainly confused when I read both websites offering different viewpoints. Yep. I um, definitely... I definitely think this is being put on by uh, the world of outlaws and uh, the idea is to, you know, it's a limited, it's a no spectator, limited, um, what did they say, limited participation only, participants only mm -hmm. is uh, how they called it, yeah. participants only and you yeah. have to watch it on Dirt Vision. Probably uh, I, I can only speculate that perhaps world of outlaws don't get the gate. So if they've got everyone watching it on Dirt Vision and that means anyone who might have travelled to it is going to have to watch it on Dirt Vision, if they didn't get the gate mm. for the uh, race night, they're actually going to make more money because they'll have all the people who would have turned up watching it as well. Yeah, that's a pivotal point of it. Um, absolutely correct. You've called it right, Craig. That's exactly how I see it. Um, but isn't it a reflection of the interesting times we're going through, eh? Yeah, Never seen indeed. this in the world before. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, well. That's where we'll leave it for news because on the other side of the break, we speak to Brooke Tannell. Well, in this COVID nineteen world, we're going across the Pacific now to and catching up with the man that someone recently asked me, "Who's the greatest speedway driver?" And I said, "I can't do that. There's too many disciplines. We've got to break it up into three: speed car." sedans and sprint car and you know what after a, a couple of nights of ruminating i came up with this man brooke tatnell as the greatest ever speed car driver a uh, sprint car driver there's a freudian slip sprint car driver to come from australia and i'm very pleased to catch up with brooke now as uh, i know dennis is as well good evening brooke you do know the conversion rate on the dollar is pretty good right now so <laughs> i'll pay for that compliment i think you're so far off the mark though it's not funny, but I'll, but uh, mate, I'm uh, very honoured and privileged that uh, we even be thought in that category. The internet's just exploded, so uh, with my comment, but that's all right. I can, I got uh, big enough shoulders. I can live with it. Well, that, that that's okay too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you deal with it. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but seriously, how's things going in Tennessee? It's uh, tough for a race car driver when there's no racing. Yeah, well, I live up in Minnesota nowadays. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, I lost uh, – I've been with the race team. Barry Lewis owned the race team for four and a half years that I drove for him. And then TK Concrete was our sponsor, and they took over the race team when Barry uh, had, had made the decision to sell. And we shook hands in November and had put everything in place before I left to come to Australia. and. Um, I think it was the 
week prior to the Classic this year that I got an email saying that teams changed directions and uh, they were going to make a driver change. And unfortunately, at that time of year, there's nothing, uh, there's no rides available. Um, I still have a 360 ride that's just a, a local thing. Um, it's, it's a scenario of a drive for a team that, Amy, the, the car owner, actually used to own a race car that my wife's dad drove. Um, so it's more of a history thing. It's more of the connection of, I connect with the um, guys that appreciate the history of the sport. Um, so I run for them. But uh, they're actually going to step up their program a little bit, maybe try to go from six races to maybe 15 races for the year. But... Yeah, with no racing, it's very, very hard to even um, it's hard to ring a car and say, "Hey, mate, your driver's not performing. Uh, if you make a switch, I'm available." Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're we're just in the process of hopefully um, in the next twelve hours uh, inking in a deal that we'll be available to go and race the uh, Outlaw Show at Knoxville next weekend. That's great news, Brooke. It's Dennis Newland here. How you doing, Brooke? I'm doing very well. Brooke, um, I want to talk about your career, but firstly, um, I, I just want to tell you a little bit about your, your great, late great dad, George. Um, you know, when I was doing my magazines, National Speedway Illustrated and Speedway Racing News going back to the year dot, if it was ever a quiet news day, Brooke, there was only one person I ever rang, and that was your father, to get a news story, a quotable quote, and i got to say, his involvement as a showman, entertainer, driver, he was it's probably fair to say he was the only driver that really cracked it into the corporate world with Midford shirts, Winfield, uh, you, you name it, um, Shell. What made him so successful? Look, I, I think he always thought out of the box. Um, I think the biggest thing is, and it's something that I think I, and I'm going to say it as high as 90% of today's current races, he had passion for the sport, not for his own career, but a passion for the sport. Yeah, look, I I, I can guarantee you that there's been certain days where the sport was pretty quiet and I guarantee if you rang in today's era, if you if he was alive, uh, it was actually just gone past this weekend. This week it was his eighty first birthday. But um, if he was alive and we and you were making those phone calls, you ring these drivers, and today they'd be, oh mate, we're not making any money. Oh mate, it's tough to find a ride, you know. And he would have sat here and whether he had a story for you or not, he would have made one up for you. He he did plenty of those. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Brooke, um... <laughs> look, yeah, no, he, look. He was, I think the biggest thing is he was so passionate about the sport and believed in the success of the sport. He had a uh, foresight for the future, and I, it, it, unfortunately, it's not until after he had passed that I think a lot of people saw how important and. Uh, how good he was for the sport. I think. I think for so many people, um, people thought that George Tatnall was all about Big Tatnall or Tatnall Racing, and uh, 
you know, Robert Barr's been one of those guys that has made that uh, statement. But I think when you really want to sit back and look back at what he did for the sport, um, I think the sport has gained so much more for, for his involvement, more so than what the Catnall Racing identity did. I, I think what it is too, Brooke, the, the one thing he... He was not only so popular in the corporate world with these sponsors, he was known by a lot of people in different areas in the business world. But I think there's one thing that George Tatnell always did and did it better than I would say any other competitor. He always delivered for his sponsors. He always gave them the media coverage. He always gave them the exposure. And and I think that was always one of his greatest attributes, Brooke, he, he looked after the sponsors. Yeah, I, I think he looked after them because he believed in them and he appreciated them. And um, look, he, he always said, you've got to go an extra mile. Um, there was, and that goes back to whether it was getting photos of the, the nuns from the convent down in Tempe blessing the race car, or, I mean, he was always looking out for another avenue and looking outside the box. But as I said, I, I think it really does come back to passion and love for the sport. And um, look, he, I, 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 it doesn't matter how you, how you point it out, he, he looked at things a little different than most people. And he had some great mentors, you know, in, in Kimber Knight and or. Um, Mike Raymond, yeah, you know, he knew he, he was a people person. He knew how to play the game. He knew how to read people, and uh, you, he made sure he was uh, well known everywhere he went. He was he was never shy or bashful of introducing himself to no matter who that was. Um, but I don't. But but also when you sit there and look at it, uh, a country boy's education. Um, that was so diverse, whether it came to uh, jazz or blues music or rock and roll or whether it came to politics or whether it became whatever avenues you went down. Um, He was very, very knowledgeable. He was. Brooke, when you started your career going right back to karts before you got into Speedway, and it was quite obvious, born into a racing family, one day you were going to go racing. What was the one piece of advice George gave you when you were ready to start your career? When it stops being fun, give it up. It was as point blank as that. When it stops being fun, it's time to walk away. Um, if you don't enjoy it, 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 it costs way too much. It's far too much. Um, it takes far too much energy, and it takes the same energy to be having fun as it does to be miserable. And, uh, you know, that was that was the biggest thing he ever said. And, look, if you look back at our old race, my original race cars, they never had Tatnell on the race car. It always only just had Brooke. And he said, you've got to make your own name. And you don't need to follow in my footsteps. It's not about you being the next... George Tatnell, it's about you being who you are. And uh, look, I'll, I'll always say that, you know, some of the uh, invitations that I got, whether that be through Graham Moore and the Central Motorsports with the two-liter touring cars or testing Ian Thomas' NASCAR or 
uh, Greg Capewell's Formula Ford drive. I mean, a lot of those opportunities arose because of the doors that he opened. But in the same token, there was a lot of doors shut in my face um, because of who I was and George Tatnall's son. Um, and, and he made that very well clear that, you know, you're not going to please everyone. And he always has lived by the motto, you 50% cheer and 50% boo, you got 100%. He said, and there's no greater score than 100%. Mm. Now, one thing that I know I was always very frustrated about was when you made the transition from karting. The fact that here I was in the ACT and I had to wait until I could get my driver's license to go and get my speedway license. And yet, somehow, Brooke Tatnell from San Susie in New South Wales was able, four years younger than me, was able to get a South Australian driver's license and obtain his speedway license. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm getting the blame for that. Hang on. Now, we probably should be going back to Jamie Moyle and Jamie Cobby um, because South Australia allowed, you, allowed it at 16. That, yeah, no, look, it, 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 that goes back to Mike Raymond, um, Dad, and, you know, uh, petitioning to the uh, uh, sports, uh, sports and rec because you used to be able to ride, ride or uh, it was worded ride a two- or three-wheel vehicle at 16, but you had to be 17 to be able to drive a four-wheel vehicle. And um, that's where a lot of these kids, I think, they need to appreciate what, you know, Dad and Mike Raymond and and the consortium of people that uh, got the law changed. And it was. It wasn't just going to your local sprint car control council to get it changed. It was actually going through the state to to get those laws changed. Brooke, um, when you got into your sprint car career, um, the Australian Championship was something you chased pretty relentlessly, and it, it took a few years to get it. I'm, I'm not going to say, did you ever, I'm not going to ask you, did you ever think you wouldn't win it, but was there any source of frustration there because you were chasing it for a number of years before you, you made the breakthrough in 2005? If I say 17 bloody years to win an Australian title, that tell you the frustration? <laughs> um, look, I, I grew up as, as all I ever wanted was a – and if I want to be completely honest, all I ever wanted was a picture hanging up a, on the wall of a midget with an Australian one on the car, on the tail tank. That's what I wanted as a kid. Um, the – racing the spring car and not the midget. Um, I sat there and, you know, like, look, the only midget rides I ever had, I drove for Ronnie Liddell. Um, and what was funny about that was that car was actually the car that my dad won the Australian title in. Um, and 20 years later, I get to have my first midget ride uh, in the same car that my dad won the Australian title with. Uh, and Lyndon Kendall and Gordon Benning, three midget guys I drove for. Um, but, yeah, look, the, the whole thing was about a picture. It was about being able to put a picture um, of my race car with Australia one on it next to the, you know, uh, four pictures of my dad with Australia one on it, whether that be a 
sprint car or midget that he won the title then. But look, I'm a, I'm old school. I, I'm still a firm believer that the most prestigious race you can win in Australia is an Australian title. And I don't care if that's midget, sprint cars. Um, I don't care what it is, super sedan, street stocks. Our, our Australian title is still our most prestigious event. It may not be the most lucrative out of all the events in the country, but without doubt. Um, and, I, and I think we've got to give Gary Rush a lot of that praise because when we were growing up, he really had a stranglehold on it that no one got to win the Australian title because he won it so many damn times. Um Nowadays, I don't think there's anyone had a complete stranglehold of it like Gary did, um, which may have taken away a little bit of what the Australian title means. But yeah, look, the frustration was definitely there. I always said I never wanted to be the one of those guys of one of the most successful, but never won that race. Um, it was just about, it was something I was passionate about and I was never going to give in. And, and that just comes back from heritage. If you look at my dad's attributes, uh, one of them was he was pig-headed and, you know, tell him no and he's going to fight all the way till he proves to you that the answer is yes. And when you did make the breakthrough, that was one of the most emotional nights in Australian Speedway history I can ever recall Um, because your dad, it was 2005, your dad was having some health problems at the time and um, it was a night of high emotion, Brooke, uh, as you will well remember. Yeah, look, I I just, you know, I wasn't even meant to be there. I was... uh I was in, in LA, held up in customs after eight hours interrogation, and uh, basically had my entry um, declined. And they put me back on a plane that night. And we were sitting here fighting with uh, Homeland Security, trying to prove that uh, I'd never overstayed a visa. And and that's what was difficult about it. Like so many guys over the years have not done the visas and not done it legally and I'd done it all legally and um, some, and, and it ended up coming out in the uh, in the end that uh, Homeland Security made a mistake. Uh, it had cost us World of Outlaws um, career opportunities maybe but same token it was an Australian title we weren't meant to be at probably should never have won and we did win it, and you know, look. When you look at a time frame of where life went, uh, look, I got to win it, and I got to run Australia one on um, one of our Team Tatnall race cars before going to Cricket Motorsports, and I got to share all that with my dad, who's my mentor, my my hero, my Superman, and my best friend. Brooke. Um over the years, uh, the the battle for the Australian title, you you and um, your rival, I guess you could call it over over many years. I mean, it was it was great, it was great for the sport. You and Gary Brazier went at it so hard um, that that the intensity of the competition, Brooke. What was it really like to know you're lining up on 
on a, on a starting grid and right beside you's your arch enemy on the track anyway, Gary Brazier. Oh, look, you know, <laughs> we were kids when it was happening. Um, I think Gary, like I'll, I'll always say it, I'm not embarrassed to say it. Gary is the most naturally talented race car driver Australia has ever produced. Um, will and desire, not as high as he's talent. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, look, you know, we all look at it different. I just wanted it worse than Gary. And, you know, look, like there's always going to be debates who was better, Brooks Atlaw or Gary Brazier. And, you know, I, I think if you want to be totally honest with it, if you were looking at the 90s, Gary Brazier, you know, had an edge over me. If you want to look at the 2000s, you know, we we would we had surpassed Gary. We just probably blossomed and bloomed at, at, at different stages in our lives. Uh, you know, I think if we had won the Australian title earlier, um, that was the monkey on my back. I mean, look, if you look at races that we raced against each other, uh, I think we realistically, if you want to look at record books, we had the edge over Gary. We had more race wins. But when it came to that Australian title, that was what Gary was all about. Um, you want to talk about Peter Brock and Australian touring car racing, you don't really talk about the championships. You talk about Peter Brock and Bathurst. And that's Gary Brazier. You talk about Gary Brazier and the Australian titles. And, you know, uh, look, I... He, I don't think I've ever respected a racer that I'm racing against today as much as I respect Gary. Um, and, and it's always been that way. There was always a true admiration of respect of ability. And if you look, I could probably only count maybe three, four times that Gary and I actually ever made contact with each other. So, I mean, there was a, uh, it was a brutal rivalry, but a uh, a strong uh, respect, um, and I think that just goes back to who our mentors were—the mentors of Peter and George Tadlock. Um, you know, it wasn't about egos; it was about respect. It's interesting the comments you made about the Australian title because Dennis and I have long had uh, discussions probably more off-air than on, about the Australian title in sprint cars still being a closed shop. And uh, then also, uh, Dad and I more recently had a conversation about uh, a one-race Australian title over what is the World Series for sprint cars and which one is the truest reflection of the greatest driver of that year. Now, You've certainly won a lot of World Series. Where do you stand? Is the Australian title to you still the Holy Grail, even though you've won so many of, well, so many of both, in honestly, in honestly uh, World Series and Aussie titles? Yep. You only get to wear one number one. I, I hate this crap about states allowing um, you can carry your state number one. I don't agree with it. There should be one number one sprint car. There should be one number one midget. There should be one number one super and late model, whatever we call them these days in Australia. Um, look, oh, what's harder to win? 
in different aspects. Like I can sit here and say we've won five Australian titles, we've won nine World Series titles. Most people are probably going to expect me to say that the guy that wins World Series should be the number one for that year. I don't because I love the history and the tradition of the sport that says, you know, and, and, and it's on a rotation system. Um, look, I, I'll use Jamie Veal um, as, as an example of the years that he's run World Series. He, he ended up winning World Series. But, um, but the year he probably, the years that he is, he had one year there that he dominated the sport, had more victories than anyone else. Um, he didn't run World Series that year, I believe. Um, the Australian title came up. He still didn't win the Australian title. He was the most dominant driver of the season. He didn't win World Series and he didn't win the Australian title. Um, so, I, I mean, I do. I still sit here and look at the Australian title should remain the way it is and still be our most prestigious race, should still be the only race that allows a car to run number one. And I think we've just got to get back to the marketing and promotion of the sport and the education. Um, And I think there's there's two guys that could – well, there's probably three guys right now that could probably – promote and educate some of these younger generation guys. We all think the classic's the be-all to end-all because it's our biggest international event. Um, but it's not on a, it, it's at one racetrack. Um, I think Gary Rush, Gary Brazier and Kerry Madsen are three guys that could really educate some of these young guys on how in the importance of what the Australian title means. When you look at a guy like with Kerry Madsen that uh, was sitting here driving for an Australian car owner, uh, had probably one of the best operations in America and the world going around at the time, and they roll into the Knoxville Nationals with Australia one on your car. If that doesn't tell you what the prestige of being an Australian champion is, I don't know what else will convince people. The other thing, I guess, is you made the decision to move to the States and chase that US dream, and in some ways you're still chasing it. What was that like, to make the decision to leave Australia and set up over there? Look, the the initial coming over here, that was just a stepping stone that, you know, at the time a lot of us had made. Um, Colin Farr, Robert Farr, Nathan McDonald, Gip Jackson, Peter Murphy, Kerry Madsen. I mean, we all followed the steps of Jamie Moyle, uh, Johnny Walls, Brett Lacey, Gar- Gary Rush, Steve Brazier. Um, so coming over here really probably wasn't a condition that I was looking at packing up, moving to America to live. Um, I was coming over here to race and I wanted to be a big fish in a big pond. And I was chasing a dream and and, it, and, and look, a little bit of it was maybe the America thing. Um, my dad got to live a little bit of 
his passion and dreams through me with coming to America. But it really wasn't until I'd say '99. Oh, you know, now I'd already been coming here for eight years at that point. Um, in '99, when I had the opportunity, and I was at that crest of I, I'd run my own board of outlaws team over here. Um, financially, I was in a hole. And it was Max Dumsney that turned around. I met him at the trade show. And Max said, but he goes, I'm going on next year. And I said, nothing, mate. I said, I think I'm about done. And he said, Brooke, you're right on the crest of the wave. Don't give up right now. Ride it out and see where it goes. He said, I gave up when I was at your point. Um, so, look, I looked at it in the aspect that I would probably be racing in America, coming back to Australia every year for the rest of my life or the rest of my career. Um, and, and, and what prompted us to move here is you know, the racing aspect. We had good rides. Um, the, the commitment factor was here for a lot longer of the year. Could I? Could we have been smarter and maybe stayed in Australia? Um, race, raced more. Spent more time in Australia, raced more of the bigger races and promoted ourselves and made more money that way, yes. But, you know, it, what it ends up boiling down to is uh, I met my wife and uh, she's American. Um, we were living the outlaw trails and kids growing up and, you know, this is where I thought realistically um, where my career was. Again, it comes back to if uh, my dad was alive, uh, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be sitting here <laughs> in a state that um, ends up with three foot of snow on the ground. I would be actually packed up and living in Australia right now. Which, um, Brooke, leads me to the to the question. Actually, I might, might add, you, your dad was one of the initial trailblazers in 1970 who was one of the first uh, Australian drivers when he raced um, Larry Rice's father, his yep. old Pop blue Rappy, as it was known. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I guess he sent the set the benchmark uh, for you, Brooke. Yeah, you had to follow in his tyre tracks. Brooke, you have had some success, some very, very notable success in America. And I think it was 2006, bear me out, I think I'm right, you finished fifth uh, in the world of outlaw points standing, sixth in the world of outlaw. I mean, just to get into the top ten, Brooke, is a mighty achievement. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny because, uh, yeah, we finished sixth uh, that year. Um, what the top point in, it was probably career-wise, it was one of the highest career points I was on. I was driving for probably uh, a team that was in the top five teams in the nation. Uh, I was working with a crew chief, Troy Renfro, that had as much belief in me as I had in him, which was a relationship that was exactly the same as what I shared with Alan Felch. Um, and we had just actually passed Joey Saldana for second in points. Um, when Dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and 
my co-runners were like, hey, you need to go and be with your dad. Um, and, you know, I, I sit there and I, I'm fortunate enough that, uh, look, I don't ever regret career-wise what coming home to be with my dad may have cost us, what it may not have cost us, if it cost us anything. But, yeah, look, we, we weren't going to catch Donnie shot that year. Um, to win the championship, but we just passed Joey for second in points. And, uh, yeah, it's still, still a proud moment of where we're at considering to end up sixth. And we, uh, I think we ended up missing uh, five weeks of the uh, outlaw trial. So, yeah, look, I mean, you can look at it in all, all different ways. And uh, it's a scenario that I sit there and look at what, it wasn't until probably 94 that I even knew that my dad raced over here for old Pop Rice and uh, an old blue offy on the pavement. Uh, I saw a photo and it came up and, uh, you know, that was the first time I knew about him ever coming over here. But yeah, look, we've had a, we've had a pretty, pretty decent run. Um, and that year I thought was going to really, really be the year that cemented our, career, to be honest, that, uh, you know, we could ride on our own coattails for for a while, but, you know, we did what we did, and uh, we, we keep fighting away. It was a mighty effort, Brooke, considering those races that you did lose in that five-week period, but a, a tremendous uh, career result for you, Brooke. Now, You've still probably got, what, eight, ten years in your career remaining. I mean, I guess you keep racing until you, you don't enjoy it anymore, as you said earlier in the interview. Um, where do you see you – what do you plan to continue living in the, in a, the U.S. going into the long-term future, or do you want to curtail your racing and finish your career in Australia? Do you have any long-term plans where you're at and where racing sits going into the long-term future? I mean, look, I, I think there's a lot of people ready to put me out to pasture, um, but oh, oh, I'm not. No, no I'm, way. I'm so far from being ready to be done. Um, what what the difference is, is it goes through my whole career. I, at certain point, at a certain point in my life, I realized that you had to finish a race to win a championship. And I molded a career around that. Um, are we as flashy as flamboyant as James McFadden? No, but I don't see James McFadden racing for 30, 35 years either. Um, and that's nothing against James the way he drives or saying that he's not good enough to race that long. I just don't foresee it. Um, look, I would like to sit here and say that we're going to pick up a decent ride over here and we'll replenish our career. What most people don't probably realize is I haven't had a crew chief in America since 2007. So for the last 13 years, I've had to be my own crew chief. Not something that I've ever really wanted to do. I wanted to understand the dynamics and understand the whole thing so I could give them the feedback that we need to make it better. Um, but, you know, I still think there's a lot for us to achieve over here. 
I sit here and throw an eight-year term out the window that, you know, I, I've got my son Garrett that is mini-me, loves his racing like there's no tomorrow, um, lives and breathes it, probably does more mechanical work uh, as a nine-year-old on the race car. Um, just at the end of last year, I was trying to teach him how to run the valves on the motor. Um, yeah, and he's nine. And look, if he chooses a career to go down the path of motorsport, it will probably be the demise of me. <laughs> um, I keep giving him golf clubs and teaching him to have a uh, how to use a big berth or golf club instead of a uh, how to use the right rear at six inches off the fence, but. No, look, I'm not really ready to curtail. Look, we've had all different opportunities and different offers in Australia to come back and run for teams. Um, I'm very fortunate with Ray Scott and the Scott's Motorsport team that they look at me and have asked me, who do you want for a crew chief? Um, and my first pick in Australia as a crew chief will be Pete Caporn, who I was with with Crickies. For a long time, and the last three years with Ray Scott, he's uh, been able to come out on collective races to help us. And you know, I'm willing to forgo racing more, but to do it in a better and right manner um, of having a crew chief and having someone take that pressure off me. And if you look at the years of uh, my career in Australia, you look at the years I raced with Alan Falsh and you look at the years that I raced with Pete Caporn or Dylan Buswell and, you know, by far they're my most, most successful years. So I'm not looking at where we curtail or how we ramp this down um, because I'm not ready to give up. I'm not ready. I still feel that we've got Australian titles under our belt to come. Uh, if you look at podiums of the classic over the last 15 years. I don't think anyone's career matches what we have and we're still battling. Um, I think there's several classics and stuff there and you know, look, if we went out to chase another World Series championships and we said alright, we're going to make a three-year goal and a three-year commitment to World Series, I believe we could still win another World Series championship. Since you came into sprint car racing, there's been a lot of advancements in race car technology, uh, a lot of different areas. In your view, what is the one single significant advancement that has been made in sprint car racing since you entered the sport to today's present-day era? Without doubt, shock technology. Um, you know, when I started racing, every you, you bought a shock off the shelf. Um, you, you go back to Dad, you had Coney shocks, uh, like at Dad and Howard's era, you had Coney shocks, you had uh, Pedder shocks, you had uh, Selby shocks that were um, Dean Gall. <clears throat> you know, it, you don't realise at the time, especially when you look at Selby's, how far ahead of the sport they were. Um, I remember my dad saying to me, we've got 40 shots hanging up on the truck. And he said, when I was at the peak of winning Australian titles, he said, we rolled in on an open trailer with the four shots on the race car. 
And if they were chrome, you had the trick set up. I said, well, what's the deal with the chrome? He said, they look cool. Um, and that's where I think the biggest technology changes come within our sport is by far the, the shock technology and what um, every man's dog has a shock dyno now. So everyone's always testing shocks and trying little this and little that. I mean, I, I remember Alan Dolch in 1993 rebuilding shops in his garage, and we had no shop dyno. He'd sit there and push it in and out on his eyes and says, Yep, that's a good setup for Slick. Get another shop, push it in and out. Crew chief advancement is our biggest technology advancement that we've had. Well, Brooke, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you here today, and uh, we look forward to seeing how things progress in the next uh, few days on uh, your racing over there in the States. Yeah, no, mate, we're excited. We'll uh, see what comes and uh, we'll uh, keep making plans and keep coming back to Australia and keep plugging away. We look forward to seeing you back here very soon. Brooke Tatnell joining us here on Inside Speedway. Inside Speedway is available on sportsradio.com.au, iTunes, Spotify, and the dirttrackchannel.com. Dennis, uh, fascinating chat always with Brooke. He uh, certainly is not afraid to uh, call it as he sees it. Well, what I like about Brooke Tatnell, he analyzes things very, very well. He does. He always has. And, um, you know, he's always interesting to talk to. And I'm sure our listeners thoroughly enjoyed that interview because I know I certainly did and you did. And uh, a terrific fellow. And what a, what a great race record he has, you know nine World Series Sprint Cars championships and also, of course, uh, five Australian Sprint Car titles. I thought his views on where the Australian Sprint Car Championship sits in this as opposed to a national series for an Australian champion via World Series Sprint Cars, I thought that was very interesting content, what he said. Mm, Yeah, indeed. Well, Dennis, always a pleasure to catch up with you and uh, I'm looking forward to what we might have in store for next week. Yep, thanks, Craig. It's always um, good to be with you on the show. And uh, thanks to all the support we're getting too and the feedback from the listeners. Uh, We enjoy bringing this to you every week and we'll continue to do so. Tune in next week for more on Inside Speedway. Inside Speedway is produced by Thunder Media. Any reproduction, accounts, or descriptions of the program without written permission from Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Inside Speedway is brought to you by P1 Australia and by Speedway Classics Magazine, on sale now.